This is the HBO Boxing Podcast. I am HBO Boxing Insider Eric Raskin, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, fellow HBO Boxing Insider Kieran Mulvaney. And I want to wish you a happy Thanksgiving, Kieran. Uh, this year, we unite in our shared consumption of tofurkey. Uh, and I think we should go around the podcast table and each say one thing we're thankful for. I'll start. Uh, I'm thankful for the loyal listeners of the HBO Boxing Podcast who've tuned in for nearly five years and will surely support us anywhere we go. You know, if we were to hypothetically go somewhere in the near future. Uh, Okay, Kieran, now that I've taken the perfect ass-kissy route and left you with an impossible act to follow, it's your turn. What are you thankful for? (laughs) Well, Eric, I'm thankful that whatever has happened over the last five years and whatever may happen, in the subsequent years, I know that I'm in absolutely no danger of being the second funniest person on the boxing podcast. <laughs> okay, that's something to be uh, thankful for. I guess you're right. There was that one time that uh, Michael Gluckstadt came on and acted as our judge for something. Oh, so yes, he's, he was the right. second funniest, uh, dropping you to third. Yep. <laughs> well, that point went way over your head, didn't it? <laughs> right. <laughs> anyway. Moving on. This really augurs well for our future. Um, (laughs) So, hey, guess what? HBO World Championship Boxing returns to Atlantic City, no less, uh, this Saturday uh, from the Hard Rock Hotel and Casino. And in the main event, Dimitri Bivol, last seen on the same network at the same location, outpointing Isaac Chalemba, takes on comebacking veteran Jean Pascal in light heavyweight action. In the co-main... 4-0 4-0 super bantamweight prospect and 2016 Olympian Murajan Akhmadaliev meets Isaac Zarate. Uh, that action begins at 10 p.m. And we begin, as always, by asking what is at stake for the main event fighters. Uh, for Dimitri Bivol, um, on the latest two days special, we saw both Max Kellerman and Jim Lampley suggesting before Bivol's aforementioned fight with Chalemba that the Russian was already the best light heavyweight in the world. Well, that was far from a universally accepted opinion then and remains a far from universally accepted opinion now, but he is certainly in that conversation. And so what's at stake here is his claim to being just 14 fights into his pro career, the best at 175 pounds. Certainly on one level, Bivol's claim was bolstered when Sergei Kovalev got stopped by Eliada Alvarez shortly after uh, Bivol exited the ring at the Hard Rock uh, on August 4th. But conversely, that then entered Alvarez into the conversation. Uh, Alexander Vozdek might very well be in that conversation too. I'm sure he is actually. Badu Jack might be in it. And of course, lineal champ Adonis Stevenson remains in it too, especially now that he has suddenly decided to start actually fighting real opposition. Uh, yeah. Scoring a draw in his last fight and taking on Vozdek in his next one. Um, but when you look at those names, it's very easy to think that Bivol is indeed the most talented of all of them. Uh, against John Pascal, he needs to dominate if he's to leave observers calling him that the very best light heavyweight in the world. If Bivol struggles, if he wins close, if it looks uninspiring, that won't do it, especially as he looked slightly underwhelming last time out against admittedly difficult opposition in Chilemba. Um, if he batters Pascal, though, and knocks him out, then pending the result of the upcoming stevenson Vojtek fight, uh, there will be no shortage of experts suggesting that Bivol is indeed as Lampley and Kellerman suggested a few months back, the best fighter in the division. For what it's worth, I'm not personally ready to crown him yet, uh, and I won't be ready to crown him after Saturday night. He just doesn't have the resume yet. But on the eye test, on pure talent, if that's all we're talking about, then right now, 
Yeah, I might just lean Beevil over Alvarez and Stevenson and Jack and Vojtic. Um If you looked at that whole crew and you told me one of these guys is going to be in the pound for pound top five in two years, who's it going to be? I'd say Beevil. Um, but as you said, he needs to be dominant against Pascal to come out of this with a claim to being the best right now. Uh, and one other thing in terms of what's at stake, what he's fighting for, Beevil doesn't have any champs or former champs on his record right now. Uh, even covering the whole extended alphabet universe, none of his 14 opponents so far held a quote-unquote world title. So whatever his current shortcomings, Pascal is an ex-champ, uh, an ex-true lineal champ. I guess it doesn't hurt to get one of those on your record. Indeed. All right, moving on to what's at stake for that former lineal 175-pound champ, Jean Pascal. Uh, this isn't something we have to talk about too often in this segment of the podcast, but what's at stake for Pascal is his health. Um, certainly, if he pulls the upset win, then the upside is enormous. He has another belt. He presumably gets another big money fight after this. But more pressing and more realistically in play than that, is the physical threat to the 36-year-old Pascal, who devoted podcast listeners may remember, after his January 2016 rematch defeat to Sergei Kovalev, Kieran and I both sort of kind of suggested mm. retirement might be something for him to consider. Uh, wouldn't have been the worst idea ever. But he's kept fighting, and he's done okay, to be honest. He's gone 3-1. and one. The loss was a competitive loss to Elader Alvarez. No shame in that. Uh, but he had a fight last December against... Ahmed Elbiali that he said was his retirement fight. He won. He retired. And then he came back in July for a cruiserweight fight against an MMA fighter, Steve Bossy, uh, that was really a novelty event more than a serious boxing match. And now Pascal is taking on possibly the best fighter in the division, a guy a decade younger than him in his physical prime. As best we can tell, Pascal is not all used up. He has something left. He's still a capable fighter. An opportunity to fight for a belt and make some more money came along. You can't blame him for taking it. But there's cause for concern in this matchup because he's fighting an opponent at the very highest level. And you just hope Pascal can come through this fight safely. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought this up. Look, uh, you ask Freddie Roach what he could have done to avoid contracting Parkinson's. And he'll tell you he should have stopped boxing earlier when Eddie Futch told him to mm. when he started to hit the downslope. Um, there's no universal constant, is there? And what can cause some boxers to suffer injury and damage later in life? And what can enable some to avoid it? Um, but one clear risk factor is fighting on for those few fights too many, fighting on past that point when they're clearly in decline. Um, Pascal's not the only boxer to do that, of course, and nor is the only current fighter to have stepped away from the ring for a little bit and then returned to it. You know, right now, for example, both Mike Alvarado and Brandon Rios are doing just that. Both are winning, um, even though both are clearly shot, at least at the level at which they used to operate when they were rivals. Um, and as you know, Pascal appears to have something left, but as you also know, his wins of late have been against opposition that frankly strives to be mediocre. Right. Um, and Dimitri Bivol, as you said, is of an altogether different standard. Um, look, there are plenty of boxers who have fought on seemingly too long, but have done perfectly well, who have heard the concerns, shrugged them off and, and done fine for themselves. Uh, George Foreman's an obvious example. And there were plenty of people, including myself, who thought that Eric Morales um, after his losses to Manny Pacquiao, should have just stayed away from the ring, who was in grave danger against Marcus Maidana, for example. But although he lost that fight, he put forth a sterling effort. Um, look, as you say, Pascal can scarcely be blamed for wanting to earn some more money, but this is a dangerous business. 
And Pascal, who had been training for a lower level of opponent until that fight was canceled while he took time out because of the death of his father, is taking on this extremely risky foe at short notice. So it potentially, it does not bode well. But Pascal obviously will be hoping to perhaps ride that sort of inspiration, if you will, of his late father to prove us all completely wrong. Yeah, and the Morales example is a good one. And there are many more throughout history like that where we said, uh, boy, we'd like to see this guy retire. And then they came back and accomplished a little bit more, yeah. proved us wrong a, a little bit. Um, maybe Pascal will do that. Nevertheless, I think uh, we as journalists and all the fans out there have every right and reason to be a little concerned for him going into this fight. Yeah. All right, moving on to a storyline. Uh, going into the August 4th doubleheader at this same arena in Atlantic City, the plan was for Dmitry Bivol to face Sergei Kovalev next, perhaps on this very November date, uh, with the possibility of the torch being passed. Kovalev was a star, reigned as the top guy in the 175-pound division for a few years, could draw in Atlantic City, was the preeminent figure in the main event stable, and the thought was that he would be giving Bivol an opportunity to take his own career to the next level if he could beat Kovalev. Uh, maybe he'll become the new draw in Atlantic City. He's co-promoted by main events and World of Boxing. Maybe if he beats Kovalev, he takes that number one position in the main event stable. That was the plan, to have a direct torch passing or at least an opportunity for Bivol uh, if he proved capable. But in the world of unscripted entertainment, plans don't always come to fruition. Bivol is still trying to take that torch from Kovalev, but he doesn't get the opportunity to do it directly. The question is, can he be as focused for Pascal as he would have been for Kovalev? Can he avoid a letdown following the disappointment to him of Alvarez knocking out Kovalev on August 4th? And how much harder will it be for Bivol to emerge as a big-time star if he never gets the rub, as they call it in pro wrestling, directly from Kovalev? So I don't think the focus will be a problem. I mean, Bivol seems to me to be a very smart, serious guy. Um, I don't think he's the kind to take training or an opponent lightly, um, unlike, say, Kovalev, for example. Um, <laughs> And clearly, look, there's no doubt that beating Sergei Kovalev would have granted him the recognition that defeating Pascal won't. Um, but of course, that option may yet be available if Bivol wins on Saturday and Kovalev defeats Alvarez in the rematch on in January. But because Kovalev has lost to Alvarez now, as well as to Andre Ward twice, um, there's no doubt that even if the torch is passed directly, it's going to be that much dimmer now. Um, so, you know, even if Kovalev does get that revenge. So as a consequence, I think the difference between him becoming accepted as the best in the division by beating Kovalev or by beating anybody else is that little bit less, you know. So the script doesn't always pan out as, as written. Um, the torch isn't always passed directly. So if Bivol has to take another route, look, if he ends up taking this route through Pascal, Vojdik and Alvarez, Mm -hmm. that's that's pretty darn good. And I don't think anyone will care that he doesn't end up beating Kovalev to do it. Um, that He will have established himself as the number one in the division anyway. The best thing he can do is beat the guys he has to beat and keep doing so. You know, the interesting question for me is not so much whether he can establish himself, as Kovalev did for a while, as the best light heavyweight in the world. I agree with what you said earlier about him potentially having that talent, feeling as if he probably has the most talent uh, of that group that's, that's in that conversation. What I think is interesting is whether he could supplant his 
his compatriot in terms of popularity and reputation. You know, Kovalev always had that air of a Bond villain about him, um, which, which sort of helped, I think, with his recognition. You, you didn't just want to watch Sergei Kovalev beat somebody. You wanted to watch him scream at his opponent to get up after he'd knocked him out. Um, you know, and Kovalev just carried that air of being a badass. Um, sometimes, frankly, in altogether unacceptable ways. Um, Bivol, though, is a bit more James Bond than Bond villain, but unfortunately, mm. he's a bit Timothy Dalton rather than Sean Connery. Um, <laughs> right. He's a nice guy, Dimitri Bivol. He's well-spoken. He's striving to learn English, but so far, the personality hasn't come out. We still don't have a sense of who Dimitri Bivol is. Sergei Kovalev, I always thought that you looked at him, you listened to him, you watched him. You knew that one way or the other, he was going to hurt people for a living. If he hadn't become a professional boxer, he was going to wear like a leather jacket and gloves and beat up people in alleyways in Chelyabinsk for some, you know, oligarch. That was just, he was going to do violence to other people and enjoy it. That was who he was. Dmitry Bivol, who is he? We still don't know that. And I think we still need to see a bit more of that and also a little bit still more personality in the ring, as good as I think he is, for him to not only become the best in the division, but to actually become a real star in the process. Yeah, that's an important point that, there, you know, there's there's some it factor that, that yeah. goes into all of this. And some guys have it and some guys don't. And some guys have it in different ways. You know, Kovalev, uh, you know, wasn't wasn't a Manny Pacquiao or an Oscar De La Hoya right. kind of it. But he did have his own kind of it. And, yeah, we haven't seen that uh, from from Bivol yet. Uh, but that said, um it also does help to get that direct passing of the torch. You know, it's it's not coincidence that the two biggest pay-per-view stars of the most recent generation, uh, Mayweather and Pacquiao, were the last two guys to defeat De La Hoya. Uh, mm-hmm. It doesn't always get work out that way, but th- there's something to be said for a, a clean torch passing. And so it seems like whatever uh, whatever charisma he may or may not have, however dominant he proves to be in the ring. Uh, Bivol, as you said, is going to have to take some sort of alternate route to uh, proving himself the best and, and grabbing that torch. Yeah. Okay, let's chat about stats, shall we? And specifically some stats related to Dimitri Bivol, who, as we know, is an outstanding offensive fighter. But here's the interesting thing. It's his defensive numbers, perhaps surprisingly, that really jump off the page at you. Uh, Look, you can attribute some of this to the quality of his opposition. He hasn't faced an A-plus level opponent yet, but he has faced some pretty darn good ones. Um, And even so, some of these numbers I'm about to throw at you are pretty stunning. Um, So listen to this. In his last five fights, he's allowed his opponents to land just 14% 14% of their overall punches, including 9% of their jabs and 22% of their power punches. And this is great. Listen to this. Bouval has not allowed an opponent to land 10 or more total punches in a round in his last 31 rounds. Mm. That includes Barrera uh, uh, and Chalemba, who are not mugs. Right. So that's impressive. Uh, on top of that, in his last eight fights, dating back to his May 2016 outing against Felix Valera, uh, Bivol has outlanded his opponents in 57 of 59 rounds. And for those other two rounds, he was actually asleep. <laughs> Is that so? Yep. Actually, you can actually see, curled up, taking a nap in the corner. <laughs> um, if you want to focus on average punches landed per round, actual numbers rather than percentages, opponents are landing 5.7 punches per round against him. Or if you want to break it down some more, that's two jabs and 3.7 power shots. So on top of his pretty good offensive game, 
Bivol is quietly developing into one of the finest defensive fighters as well. So, Eric, is there anything a relatively selective puncher like Pascal can do to buck the trend of Bivol's exceptional defensive numbers? Well, I think being selective is the way to buck one of these trends. Uh, By not throwing too many punches, Pascal gives himself a shot at a better percentage landed than 14%. Um, Also, Pascal is still fairly fast-handed, and he can be a little awkward. So could I see him sneaking some single shots in there? Absolutely. But with his lack of activity, this is a fighter who averages 33 punches thrown per round when the division average is 52.4. With that lack of activity, he is not likely to be the guy who breaks Bivol's 10 punches or fewer streak. Pascal is going to have to catch Bivol, hurt him with that one punch he doesn't see coming to have a chance here. Maybe even a body shot. Pascal's a good body puncher. Maybe he can land the perfect punch to the liver. But that's what he's counting on, one big shot. It's unlikely that Pascal is going to pile up points and win rounds that way. Mm. All right, it is prediction time. And I'll go first, and I'll tell you what I'd like to see. I'd like to see Bivol take care of business quickly, because boxers don't usually suffer serious damage from a quick knockout. However, Pascal has a big heart. He's proven that on numerous occasions, and he's only been knocked out by Sergei Kovalev. And I think Bivol is a good puncher, but not a great puncher. So I have the sneaking suspicion we're going to get some rounds here. I wish I could say Pascal has one last great performance in him and can make this competitive, but I don't really see it. I think it's going to be one-way traffic until it gets stopped in about the eighth or ninth round. Maybe TKO, maybe even a brutal, legit KO. We have a mild disagreement. <laughs> you really dragged that out. It must be very mild. Well, well, it's all relative. If you're grading on the curve, this is like, it's extraordinary. Halt the presses. Okay. Kind of disagreement. But um, yeah, again, still, we're, you know, we're, we're not on first take. That's for sure. Um, <laughs> so look, Bivol's last two wins that we talked about, they've been times workmanlike rather than spectacular uh they're no less creditable for that um barrera and chilember as we said a couple of times already in this podcast are really solid foes um and they're even better foes to defeat in your 13th and 14th fights but they both have the they can both be pretty cagey uh, especially chilember look pascal has reached highs in his career that neither of those guys have but even though he can be selective in his punch output um even though he's not the kind of guy to be reckless he doesn't have that same degree of caginess when it comes to punches coming in the opposite direction. And he can be outfoxed by good, solid boxes, uh, as we've seen in the past. Um, He's skilled. He has power. And, you know, I just have this feeling. I just go back to, like, your original point. I'm dubious about how much of Jean Pascal there is left. Um, And I also kind of have a suspicion that, He's at the point in his career where he may feel he has something to prove, that he needs to try to get something to to show all the the, the doubters uh, a little bit wrong. I think he might be a bit more aggressive in this fight than sometimes we've seen. I think that that's going to be his downfall. Uh, he'll start off reasonably well, I think, Pascal. I think by about round three, Bivolvo will get dialed in. By about round four, it will start to be one-way traffic. By round five or so, it'll start to be pretty bad. And round six, he finishes him off. And I think probably quite quite probably with a, with a concussive shot to finish John Pascal off. And perhaps 
send Jean Pascal into the retirement home with that little bit extra money that he that he got for coming back. So I think a fairly comprehensive Kovalev win, a Bivol win, excuse me, in a couple rounds less than you think, two to three rounds less. So by our standards, massive, <laughs> massive difference of opinion. Right. But by normal standards, uh, the word mild stretched out over six seconds was exactly appropriate. Precisely. Okay. Precisely. All right. Well, look, we've uh, talked about one fight, but you don't get just one. You get two fights on this HBO World Championship card in the co-feature. We go to the super bantamweight division for the introduction of yet another up-and-coming fighter from the former Soviet Union. Uh, Uzbekistan's Murajan Akhmedaliev, a 24-year-old Southpaw, ma- managed as Izbivol by Vadim Kornilov. He earned a bronze medal at the 2016 Olympics. And as mentioned earlier, just 4-0 as a pro. He's already fighting 10-rounders. And he fights now on HBO against gatekeeper Isaac Zarate of California. Eric, what can you tell us about Akhmedaliev? What can fans expect to see from him on Saturday night? First off, I can tell you that he sometimes goes by the Americanized nickname MJ. So if you're having trouble, uh, which you are not, Kieran, but if anyone else out there is having trouble with Murajan Akhmedaliev, uh, you have an alternative. Um, I can also tell you uh, he's a southpaw, although I believe you mentioned that, uh, so I'm not contributing much there. He has a good snapping jab, and he wings a wide left cross to both the head and the body. And once he gets a little confidence... He'll box with his hands down and showboat and bounce around. I heard a commentator compare him to Sergio Martinez. And Hmm. yeah, there's a little of that. Um, He's a dynamic little fighter. I think people are going to enjoy Akhmedaliev. And I don't think Zarate has the stuff to make him dig too deep. All I know is that supposedly Vasily Lomachenko has said that he's like the next young thing to watch. And yeah. (laughs) That is high praise. Yeah, that's that's all I knows. Okay. All right. Well, that'll do it for this edition of the HBO Boxing Podcast. Uh, This was the first of four straight weeks of podcasts, uh, maybe even five, depending on when the next oral history podcast drops, but at least four. uh, And next week, it will be our post-fight pod, breaking down all the action from Atlantic City. Until then, we thank you as always for listening. I'm Eric Raskin. And I'm Kira Mulvaney.